One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second cap and first cap and whatever. Ah, the safe haven of the Monday podcast, where you can look back at big matches from the weekend and analyse them with great clarity and even greater accuracy. Such a simple task compared with those tricky preview shows during the week, which from time to time can make humble podcast presenters look very silly indeed. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Hi, Murph. Hi, Ken. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, Ken might not know what we were talking about because Ken what was away last week. About? So he was exempt from all of this. The Six Nations alone wide open this weekend. Ireland produced five tries against Wales to record a 10-point win before Scotland ripped England to shreds at Murrayfield to secure a brilliant and thoroughly deserved victory of their own. Two results that not everybody called in advance. I'm with Ben Tao on this. I'm with Ben Tao. I don't care if the match is on in Gregor Townsend's back garden, all right? Mm. England should be hotter favourites for that game than we are to beat Wales, who beat us quite a lot of the time. Yeah, that's outrageous. I mean, Scotland are a disgrace to world sport. <laughs> A disgrace to world sport. Yeah. Well, see, again, what we have here on is selective editing, you know? Because, sure, I said Scotland are a disgrace Scotland to world sport. Are a disgrace to world sport. sport. Well, that, that is my voice, those are my words. But I, I then went on to clarify the exact motivation behind my saying that. I offered myself up in an unbelievable act of self-sacrifice for my country mm-hmm. because I knew that in saying that, there is, you know, a slim chance that I would be made to look like another idiot. But I was prepared to do that on because my saying that increased Scotland's chances of winning by, I would say, 400%. I don't remember you saying any of this last week. All I remember is the bit that we, no, re- no, I we did. replayed there. And then I, and I said that because I knew that Scotland would then come to the Aviva Stadium on the I 10th mean, of March. I mean, I'm fucking raging! That has been the reaction of a number of people from Scotland on my uh, Twitter. Mm-hmm. But... I knew that then that the, the Scots would come uh, full-bellied and self-satisfied to the Aviva Stadium to roll over and let said belly get tickled by Ireland and to ease our passage to the Grand Slam. I mean, thank you. I mean, everyone that's, that, that came, went onto Twitter and, t- and told me that it was a masterstroke, you're welcome. Hmm. You're welcome, everyone. You know, that's, that's just what I do for my country. We've got a bit of scum to go with this. 
I've got a call here that says you're the most boring, predictable, condescending interviewer around. Go back to lecturing. You have the charisma of a sick bag. Oh God. That's just it. I just Whoa. mentioned not you, no me. Okay, ain't nobody fucking with my click, 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 click. Ain't nobody fresher than my mom. We don't normally click, broadcast all click, the, the stuff that click, comes from scum click, around the country. Click. Tom Donaldson got in touch, editor of secondcaptains.com, to say hi lads, world service member from day one, spreading the word of second captains here in Glasgow. When I heard last week's scumbag was calling out Kieran, I breathed a sigh of relief. However, when this turned out to be about something to do with all duck or no dinner, and not regarding his Scotland... Full duck! No dinner! Not related to his Scotland disgrace to world sport comments, I realised it had to be me to call him out on this, so I prepared a rant. I'll tell you what's a disgrace to world sport. Ireland's first half performance in Murrayfield last year. I'll tell you what's a disgrace to world sport. Conor Murray's stray elbow, which cost us half our lines in the summer. <laughs> oh, yes, she took out Stuart Hogg, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. I mean, I'll, that one definitely was an accident. I'll tell you what's a disgrace to world sport. Ireland's 5-0-5 formation against Christian Eriksen in Denmark. I, I'll tell you. <laughs> but I won't go down that road. Instead, I'll just say you're welcome. You're welcome for dealing with England on Saturday. And you're welcome in advance for most likely rolling over in Dublin, allowing you the bonus point win, which could see the championship sealed before you even step out of Twickenham. We all too often disgrace ourselves, but it makes days like Saturday that bit sweeter. Love your work. Yours in disgrace. That comes in from Tom in Glasgow. Thanks very much, Tom. And we can indeed secure, Ken, the Six Nations Championship with a game to spare. How's that? Quite easy. Happen. Oh, because Mur- England lost the match. Yeah. yeah. We, Mur- Mur- going to tell you how it's going to happen. Now. We win with a bonus point against Scotland. And England win without a bonus point in Paris against the resurgent French. Uh-huh. So you'd have to say... Well, what if England then go and hammer us and, with a bonus point and we don't get a bonus point in the final game? Well, that wouldn't matter because we'd be six ahead at that stage. Mm. So, so they can't get six bonus points. Win, uh, a bonus point this, win this weekend against Ireland, so... <laughs> Were they to beat us, say, score six, seven tries? Okay, we beat Scotland. Here's a scenario. Yeah. We go to England, try to win the Grand Slam, get beaten. Not even heavily, just get beaten. Mm-hmm. Is it a hollow victory? Is it a hollow Six Nations victory? Uh, well, I've got images of Englishmen trudging around Lansdowne Road on a couple of occasions, collecting the Six Nations trophy while looking miserable as hell. Yeah, see, the thing is, Daron, it definitely would feel hollow at that moment. But if we've already won the title the weekend before, we'll have a week of celebrating our brilliant championship victory. So it won't be quite as bad as winning the winning the championship on the same day as also losing the Grand Slam mm. we'll have won the championship and then there'll be seven days that's assuming because we're definitely going to beat Scotland with a bonus point we've decided that you presented me with a scenario <laughs> and I'm answering the question <laughs> under those uh, specific parameters mm. on. Um, we would have a week to celebrate the fact that we'd won the championship Scotland before our disgrace to World Sport there's no editing in that that's how you actually yeah. say it I feel like I'm going to hear that a couple of more times. All the Bill of Darren's gotten over the next couple of weeks on the World Service. What better reason to sign up now if you're not already on board? It's already in waiting for you on secondcaptains.com. And the Bill of starts now. Let's talk Six Nations. Campbell back to Duggan McLaughlin going for that line and Ireland are in and over Five tries from Ireland, some more late drama. Standout performances by the young players and a Scotland win over England at Murrayfield. That was a Six Nations weekend to enjoy, I think. Jerry, you, you enjoyed it, I assume? Yeah, immensely. Um, all of it. Um, nobody really saw that coming, I think. I thought that Ireland Wales, remember I said at the end of the show last week that this could be the, the match of the tournament. Um, 
and it probably was, although Scotland and England came close to matching mm. it, such as the scale of the Scots' performance and the way they deserved their win. I thought it was a, a really, really entertaining games. Um, it shows you when the sun shines or when it's not raining how much better a tournament this is, and it also shows you the value of home advantage yet again and how inspired and impassioned both home performances were. Shane, looked like good fun working on TV. It was, but it's been good fun this whole Six Nations. It's been if we get the last couple of weekends as good as the first three, we're going to have an absolutely brilliant tournament. It's been so much fun and really enjoyable to do the Six Nations this year and this week in particular. You know, even the game on a Friday, I really enjoyed that as well. I thought, you know, it's hard to tell how you know how much uh, France has moved on, but just the, the uh, because it's against the Italians and they're so so poor at the moment. But it was an exciting game with some you know high skill level and Bastro came back and he was offloading the ball. It's exactly what you want to see. And then that set up the next two games on Saturday. You know, I didn't, I actually didn't think the the quality of uh, of the Ireland Wales game was, was super high. I thought it was quite basic in, in, in lots of um, regard, um, but it was exciting. And then the England uh, Scotland game was was incredibly exciting, well deserved, and incredibly frustrating. The Scotland team <laughs> will, are driving me round the bend. Yeah. When we started the Six Nations. I thought, listen, I I thought that is the game. I, I said I I pinpointed. And I thought that could be a game that has a big effect on the on the Six Nations. I thought it was one that Scotland could possibly win but you know after the, their performance in Cardiff and even their performance you know the next time out against France um, I just didn't see it but what I what I think if we look now more clearly at Scot- uh, at uh, England and what's been going on for England since really the Australian tour last uh, you know the fir- of the first season Eddie Jones came in we're probably not critical enough, and we've been giving them a lot of slack. I thought there was a huge increase in their performance up until that point. But uh, they may be being, if not regressing, then you know, certainly stagnating. And it looked like you know it all came to came to bear in that performance against Scotland, which was which was very poor for England and concerning. Yeah, um, well, I'm not too concerned, but I know what you mean. If you're an England rugby fan, yeah, we'll get on to the Scottish Challenge in a bit more detail later. But I think the one person who didn't look that excited by the Irish performance in the stadium was Joe Schmitz. I mean, I know you picked up on this, that he, he seemed a little bit well, underwhelmed. Well, in comparison to the players and the fans, yeah. um, I mean, in such an amazing end, uh, you would imagine there'd just be relief there. And I thought the tone in post-match, Jerry, was quite negative considering it's been three wins in a row. And this is often the case with Joe. He does sort of the opposite to what you think he'll do and his reaction is the opposite to what you think. Yes, when Ireland lose, he'll actually point out the good aspects in the performance and when Ireland win, he'll point out the negative aspects in the performance. I think it's his way of trying to keep everybody grounded. He wouldn't have liked mere mention of the Grand Slam in the post-match interview, but there was no escaping that. Which I don't think Kazan. it was contrived though, sorry, this no. time. I think it was a, he was a good reaction. He was annoyed that they were, what, 27-13 up in control of the game mm. and they let it come down to the last play of the match. He evidently was annoyed about that, the concession of three tries. He talked at length about that. Um, there are real issues out wide. Their tendency to bunch in midfield or bunch close to the ruck and leave space out wide. And, you know, Stockdale and McFadden did a couple of moments out wide that they wouldn't have enjoyed the review, I'd imagine, today either. And it's three tries conceded in each of the last two home games. And as we saw with uh, the Scots, particularly in that wonderful pass from Finn Russell, if there's any chinks out wide, when he threw that long floated pass above Jonathan Joseph to Hugh Jones, um, they have not only... They, they not only got the skill to do that, but they've got an inherent desire to do that as well. They'll attack you from anywhere in the pitch. So I think um, his annoyance was, to some extent, uh, justified about the concession of the tries. I was, I'm was i a bit surprised by 
Shane's response to the Irish performance, I thought there was a lot of very good, skillful work in it. I thought Johnny Sexton's running and passing game was immense. The way that he engineered a line break for himself, another inside pass to DJ Standard for another line break. He engineered another line break for Keith Earls. I thought he, he kept the Welsh defence guessing. This was a Welsh defence that didn't concede a try for an hour in Twickenham. And to open them up and score five tries, yes, when they got down to the in-goal area, close to the try line there was a lot of physicality and a lot of brute force and kind of straight running to get them over the line but it worked because there is now with the arrival of Bundyaki and Chris Farrell and Dan Levy and Andrew Porter and James Ryan um, and Jacob Stockdale there is real heavy ball carrying in this team it's one of the most physical Irish teams we've known for some time and the other amazing fact is that of those six who all started only one of them Dan Levy had played even 13 minutes of test rugby at this point a year ago yeah, sure. There was almost nothing predictable about this game. You know, even down to Johnny Sexton's kicking, uh, kicking at the posts in particular. It just didn't go to the usual Ireland Wales formula. Um, no, but I think it went to some degree to uh, the game plans that both coaches may have set out. Obviously, you know, better for for Joe Smith than Gatland. But I think uh, Gatland's pre-match game plan would have been to go and attack in the air. Uh, I think we spoke about it last week uh, and it was obvious that they thought that may be the way to beat the Irish team. Um, you know, the initial kick from Bigger, a uh, cross kick, um, which the penalty was gained from, really set out their stall. That continued the right way through the first half and although they didn't have a whole lot of possession, um, they weren't that worried about it and it was territory that they were more interested in. And a couple of the kicks were from turnovers, uh, but they were definitely going after Ireland uh, with a kicking game. Ireland didn't deal with it brilliantly, although they could have been you know, further ahead, as you said. It's sort of bizarre that Sexton was missing um, you know, kicks that you would, you would imagine that you know, under any cir- other circumstances he generally kicks. Um, but Jerry pointed out, I thought he was the standout performer. I thought he, he's, he's, he just gets better and better every time I see him. Um, he makes space for other people. He makes space for himself. You know, everything that was positive from Ireland was through him. But I, and... Uh, but I don't think that Ireland. I think I think that Ireland reverted to a much more simplistic, simplistic and basic game plan, just for the reasons that Jerry mentioned. Uh, that um, they have now very physical and a lot of very very physical players. Two guys in midfield. You know, Porter is a you know a very very strong carrier. That's more uh, what his game is. James Ryan actually is a very good carrier, but he doesn't do he does it more sophisticatedly. He's got great footwork and and he gets over the gain line using that as opposed to you know, both strength. And you've got um, the uh, three guys in the back row can also carry as well. So I think it was a tactic uh, from Joe. I don't think it was by accident that they reduced down their game plan, and it was really effective. And um, you know he was pragmatic about that. And he could, I think he made the, the, the bet that uh, Ireland could beat Wales in, in that way, as opposed to Gatlin's bet where he was going to go to the air. And it worked for the first half, as I said, but he continued on with that in the second half when they had even less, or the first 20 minutes of the first half, where they had even less possession. And I think that's when they could have made the change that we saw later on, that happened later on, and keep the ball in hand. Uh, because it now looks like uh, Ireland have a vulnerability out there. There's now a common trait we've seen for a number of games that they don't like being challenged out in the wide areas and their players are making poor decisions. And Wales, I think, are very, very good at doing that. And uh, they should have been allowed to do it earlier. So I think there was definitely a change in tactics from both um, coaches 
and I think it was Joe Smith that came out on top. Now, whether Ireland, whether it sets Ireland back on their development or not, I don't know. Or it might just be, we're going to play this way against Wales, but we're going to play differently against Scotland, and we're going to play differently against England. Now, I think they need to play differently. They don't necessarily need to play differently against Scotland to win, but I do think they need to play differently uh, against England to win. Yeah, would that be the temptation? It's our biggest ever backline. I mean, being at the game, it was just ridiculous. It's um, so funny. It's even just even Sexton and Murray, who you yeah. write off as, as halfbacks, did Sexton run over Murray Arty one point? He carried 15 times, Sexton. At mm. one point, he did a pick and go from the base of the blind side and the build up to Keane Healy's try. I mean, he really put it about himself. Murray always well. gets over the yeah. game line if he yeah. carries, scores, tries, busts mm. people in the tackle. Keith Rose is literally the only person in the back line, and even he looks stronger than he's ever done before. Yeah. Um, so it's this new option we've never had in our history before. It's kind of a tempting one in that it's so reliable and sustainable, and yet, Shane, you would suspect that it, it wouldn't do it against, say, New Zealand or England. No, I don't think it will. I don't think it's the, it's the, it was probably the best use of the resources that Joe had um, had to play with this weekend. And so, you know, I don't, I, I, I've no criticism of reverting to that now um, and, and I think you can't um, you re- can't really question it, the fact that there was you know three really close in tries we did dominate Wales physically we absolutely bullied them and you know, that's a that's a concern for Wales but it, it's not for us we did what we needed but I, I certainly think that if we want it doesn't allow us to reach the the, the top completely top end of our game but you know pragmatism is important and you know I, I wrote uh, um, the weekend before last, or uh, about, uh, or sorry, no, we did, did something on, on TV just before uh, the game about Bundyaki and getting him uh, playing um, towards his strengths and not asking him to do things um, that he doesn't feel comfortable in doing. And I don't think we did, and that's why we got a lot out of him. And the same with Porter, and the same with Chris Farrell. Um, that's not to say that they're not skilled. It's just to say they do some things better than others, and uh, to reduce down. Um, this, this sort of the, the the technical element of some of the skills that they're doing, I think it was a smart play. Um, but when we have a full hand to pick from, I would prefer that we go with our players that have a, a higher quotient of, a quotient of skill. Jerry, after the game, Joe put part of the de- defensive errors out wide down to when the new players come on, which was the case against Italy as well, mm. partly the case against Argentina mm-hmm. when the subs came on. But this is going way back. I mean, this is with different defence coaches, different wingers, different fullbacks and centres. We seem to struggle out wide. It's obviously a philosophy of ours. We push teams up the middle and then hope they don't have the skill to get out wide. But increasingly, as as uh, particularly Northern Hemisphere rugby gets more skillful, more and more teams are finding a way to do it. Um, is it easily solvable? I mean, is it something that it's so obvious? It's It's hurting us game after game and yet we're not fixing it. Like if we didn't fix it after the Italy game, why would we be able to fix it for the Scotland game? No, I wouldn't imagine it's an easy fix, but it's an easier fix than, than an attacking game. Defence is always easier to fix than an attacking game. And there is an excellent, an excellent defence coach there in Andy Farrell. Um, he's proven this in successive Lions tours as well as with England. And it just seems to me a question of being awareness and getting their alignment right and not being so bunched. They're getting a bit tighter than they need to be getting tight, don't they, Shane? They're just actually too tight inside the inside channels. Yeah, they're, well, that's an element of it, I think. And their spacing has been a problem, mm. particularly in the opposition 22, where they can get... And listen, this isn't unique to Ireland, but they often get caught with too many numbers on the blind side. And we actually saw a Welsh team get caught with far too many numbers on the, the blind side um, for, the, for the first Stockdale try. So it's, you know, it's not unique to them, but it, it's been an ongoing issue. Their spacing hasn't been quite right. But more than that, it's a winger issue. And they need to take... 
a time uh, at this early stage of Stockdale's career um, to you know to break down what he's doing, how he's aligning himself, the conversation he's having with the outside centre, and the conversation he's having with the full back, because it is it's strikingly obvious um, that he is he's far too focused um, on on what's happening inside him. Uh, with regard to you know we're, we're trying to 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 uh, snuff out any defence with a up and in. Um, and it, it just smacks a little bit of panic and not feeling comfortable. And sometimes you just have to let things unfold. And the problem, what you don't want to do as a, as a defender is, is make the uh, decision early. Because we see if you make a decision for a, early, a good attacker will always be able to pick it and, and, and take the option uh, that you've left open. And that's what we're seeing time after time with Stockdale. Fundamentally, his positioning is wrong. If you look at his shoulders, they're always pointed in. They're constantly pointed in. And so the idea of when, you're, when, you're, um, when, you're, when your shoulder's in like that, uh, it's very, very hard to make the move to get back out again and be allowed to, to, to be a little bit softer. Um, and you're, he's also not connecting to the, thir- the 13, so he's leaving a gap. Whether it was Bundiaki for uh, the, I think it was the, um, for the um, Morton, no, whose tr- try was it? The f- I think it was the second last um, try. Uh, it was a Morton, Moore or a Shingler actually scored the try, I think. So he wasn't uh, connected or talking to the outside centre, which in that point, that occasion was Bundiaki. And uh, he just made a read and came in, and it was very, very obvious and more concerning. Uh, Carney wasn't talking to him either, so he should have been dragging Carney to the outside man. There's no need to cover him for the chip behind because he had to address the first issue first. Um, so there's a number of things that are going wrong. And then, yes, there was the other side with um, uh, with uh, McFadden came on. He's, he's has a tendency to come in a little bit. And again, that was a, that was a, should have been a conversation that was been having with the the, the second and, and second last defender. So it's something that needs to be addressed. It's, it's too it's going on too often. Uh, just to be blamed on one-off mistakes. Those players in those wide channels need to be heavily coached about how to defend it. You feel some sorry, sympathy for them as well, though, Shane, in that how often they're getting isolated. I mean, this, goes, this predates Jacob Stockdale. Or even Keith Earls was left with a lot of ground to carry, carry, cover up on Steph Evans on one occasion, and only his pace helped mm. prevent that, that being a try as well. And it goes back to that Argentina game when Dave Carney was getting isolated out in the left wing as well. Others have. It's, it's not just them. Sure it isn't. No, but like, listen, your wing, you have to remember, wingers are always, you know, very often get isolated, you know, or they can make themselves look isolated by the way they're defending, you know. And, you know, what I'm not seeing at the moment is a big issue from uh, the outside centres, you know, stepping really far in and just hanging the winger out to dry. I'm not actually seeing that. What I'm seeing is um, a lack of trust between the wingers and maybe experience um, um, and, co- and cohesion between the outside centre and seeing that the, the outside centre can can do more than one thing. And the perfect example of it was the try the Stockdale again. I mentioned earlier on the Stockdale came in. Bundiaki was the um, was the outside centre defender there. He defended it brilliantly. He defended because there was the pod. The Welsh pod came up to him and and uh, he he defended on his right man. But then when the ball went in behind, he pushed through into the second line. And went for the um, went for the secondary runner that, that was coming around the outside. The problem was Stockdale didn't trust him, and he came into that space to try and snuff out the runner. But um, Bundyaki had already done the job, so he was hanging himself out to dry because he number one he didn't trust his inside defender. Number two he was making the decision uh, too early, and um, and you're always going. And then number three he wasn't. Neither of them were obviously communicating with each other. So you know, I I think that the you know the, the wingers are isolating themselves and making decisions that they don't have to make. You know, with a little bit more experience, especially with Stockdale, and he is young, so you have to give him a bit of slack. 
you just let it unfold and don't panic. Uh, but it's certainly an Ulster, um, it's an Ulster trait that wingers are very keen to come up and in. And we saw him, he got his try at the end of it. But you know, another thing, he was in a very tricky position there. He had gone before that pass was thrown. And if I had it gone, you know, one channel further in or further out, we're having a very different conversation this morning. Yeah, we certainly are. <laughs> he did say afterwards that he felt that he could turn if he needed to. He felt yeah, he, he only, both options. He, yeah. he felt he only committed himself enough that, uh, to pick it off or to turn back on his heels. And I suppose that's a young lad who would back his pace in any circumstances. Shane. Well, you know, I, I think that's a very, very pacey uh, Welsh back line, as we saw for for um, the, the, the the Evans try. You know, there was huge mental um, pace shown there. I think it's very difficult to get back out. I'm not saying that, you know, he wouldn't have been able to do something, but there would have been a big loss in yardage. There would have been a big momentum, and there's only three points in it at that stage. You know, someone makes the wrong decision, gives away a penalty, and then, you know, it's a, it's a drawn game. If if uh, you take an advantage from that potentially penalty or, or there's another, you know, a, a runner coming from the inside, then, you know, we've lost the game. Um, it's a high risk, and it's not necessary. Um, and I think that's the, that's the problem. There's too many risks being taken uh, by defenders out wide instead of actually just being a bit calmer about it. He scored the try, though, Shane. I mean, he did. He took the risk and he got the reward, and he seems to be a player who, who does that. He's, he's getting a try every game now. Listen, he's a try-scoring machine at the moment, and it's brilliant. Um, but I don't think, listen, there's an acceptable level of risk, okay? There's a acceptable risk, and he felt that uh, that was an acceptable level of risk for him under that circumstances, under that circumstances, and that's fair enough. But there was an acceptable level of risk in some of the other defenses, defensive um, uh, reads or judgments that he made. So um, I think we have to be, you know, you know, clearer about this and not just say, like, one came, an interception came, you know, you're doing the right thing. You know, he, he hasn't been doing the right thing. And he, it's an area of his game that needs uh, correction. And that's fine. You're allowed to have areas of the game you need correction all the way through your career, but especially at his age. You know, he's only just come on. He's a young guy. He's a brilliant talent and will be successful for Ireland for years. But we don't just ignore the areas of the game that he has to improve on. And listen, I'm saying this to you now. Like, can you imagine what Andy Farrell and, and uh, Joe Schmidt are telling him? You know, and that will be ultimately very positive for him because he's a, you know, he's a brilliant talent, an attacking talent at the moment. And, and when he gets his defensive game, right, there's not that much that you know, he has to do after that. He's, he's, he's really top level. It's not just the tries being conceded. I mean, we're talking about the glaring moments in the game, but Ireland are often conceding like 15, 20 metres just through a very simple Welsh backline move. There was one to George North that wasn't even a particularly good pass to him. He got it standing still, and then he just uses basic pace and acceleration. And it was Rob Carney who just about got him in the end, just got around his ankles. But it was a really quick ruck for Wales, and it was a really dangerous position, and all the Irish defenders are scrambling. So we're talking about the big moments, but there's also just really easy yards conceded. Um, but Shin, you're talking about Joe Schmidt and you know the small detail he's famous for. Was he as good at that in defensive situations with players? Like talking to a player specifically about minute little details in their defensive shape and their defensive communication as much as he was in your attacking game? Um, yeah, it's funny. We had a few... He, he was very strong on his opinions about um, your alignment as a as a defender and he was uh, as a, as a backline defender, especially offset piece. I remember, you know, having a very early discussion about him with about which way we're going to line, whether, you know, inside or outside um, the, your, your opposite number um, or your, the, the number that the individual player that you were numbering off against. And um, 
you know, normally, and you would have a lot of conversations with Joe, and there would be input from players. And I remember, um, you know, he had he, he was saying we need to be inside um, the your opposite number and going to him. Well, you know, what about? You know, I think when we feel more uncomfortable, we start a little outside and then they flow into that position. And I remember really clearly him just going, no, this is the way I want it done. Which is kind of, he's a, you know, he's he's um, usually, you know, he'd take on board and he'd sort of, you know, figure it out together. But he was like, no, this is, he was very strong on this. So there was elements of the game that he was very strong on. Um, I think as a, as a winger as well, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of self um analysis here as well and and having a conversation with joe but it's hard to put yourself in those you know those positions um in a in a passive training where you have to be really is against uh, opposition making you make decisions or or presenting uh, potential decisions uh, in front of you but again my my um perspective would always be let the let the uh, opposition make the decisions and then react to that don't you make this decision and and let them react. And and Joe is certainly, you know, from my my memory, um, he was he was you know very happy with, with you, know, you defending in that way. Talk to us about Chris Farrell, Jerry. He's a player who Schmidt seems to have been interested in. Yes. Um, even while he was away in Grenoble, he yeah. was expecting he was expecting he'd come back at some stage, and clearly had him earmarked. Yeah, and it's amazing because we weren't really talking about him until the injury to Henshaw, and obviously if Ring rose up an injury, but he, he yeah. was he got in there, played really well, and mm. I mean nobody's. I don't even know if Henshaw was fit next week. Would he be straight back in if Farrell was good? Absolutely. He was that good. And certainly I don't think Gary Ringwald is going to be able to force his way back in now either because of the how well Chris Farrell played. Um, funny something, last week uh, no one-on-one interviews were granted to any of the players. Um, it was very much evident of the whole approach to this Welsh game. Apparently um, Joe was cussing a bit more than he normally would in the training ground. It was quite an intense build-up. I think that might explain the post-match demeanour. I think there's a real edge to the rivalry between him and Gatlin we spoke about last week and that that was one he desperately wanted to win. I think he would have liked to win better, more handsomely and felt they probably should have done and that might have explained his demeanour afterwards. Mm. Um, Chris Farrell... For, um, he he's tracked for years, and I'm told from a reliable source that he was that uh, Joe Schmidt was very instrumental in bringing Chris Farrell home to Munster, along with Razi Erasmus. Um, but I did a profile of Chris Farrell last week, so I spoke yep. to a schools coach, a couple of club coaches uh, that knew him when he started out in Clover Valley RFC, and then he went to Campbell College when he was 16. He boarded for a year. Um, he famously charged down a conversion from in front of the post for the last kick of the game to earn them a, a draw and a replay in the quarterfinals against Methody, and went on to score a try and was man of the match in the final. On that, he basically got into the Ulster schools team and the Irish schools team, having also played for Ulster and Irish youths. It didn't work out from Ulster primarily through to two very bad injuries and the logjam of midfielders they had there. So he upskipped and went to Grenoble. Bernard Jackman told me about how he met him in a Dublin airport and came away just so impressed by this guy, so level-headed. And everybody tells me that about him, that he is incredibly level-headed, grounded, um, conscious of his roots, not big-headed, a very good personality, an easy mixer. And he takes on every new challenge, you know, um, seamlessly and he went over to Grenoble and started learning French before he went over there went skiing every Wednesday got, became part of the real culture over there and became a really important player on their team had some big big matches against the Wesley Fofanas and Jamie Roberts of this world and grew and grew and grew there in every sense as a player they always saw him as an outside centre not a crash ball merchant because they think he's got great footwork he's got good hands and he brings more to the game at outside centre so between betwixt it all when it came to the match, I actually had no fears about this guy from talking to all these players who knew him so well, including Felix Jones, 
who described him as the complete package, really. He's mature physically and mentally beyond his years. He looks much more than 24 and apparently he acts much more than 24 as well. So it was no real surprise to me that he grasped that opportunity and now I think he has to stay next, next time out against Scotland, no matter who's fit. Yeah, Shane, along with all the other young players that came through, such as Porter and Levy and James Ryan, um, it was their personality that struck me as much as their actual talents. Just quite calm and... I don't think any of them made a major error. In fact, all of them are playing as well as the people they replaced almost. And they replaced Lions. Yeah, well, it wasn't a... B- Sorry? Sorry, they, placed, they replaced Lions as well. Like, you know? yeah. yeah, they replaced big names. But it, it wasn't... The way I, I was sort of watching them was not about what mistakes they were making. And that's often the way you look at um, very inexperienced players, which they all are. Um, but that wasn't the that's the prism we we weren't didn't have to view them through it was actually their contribution and um and uh, and being what what you would describe as leaders and from what i always think a leader is is who will take on responsibility and and who demands the ball and they all did that constantly and it's much more than you could expect maybe from from people with so um, you know so little international experience but maybe just goes to show that you know the jump between or the responsibility you have to take uh, to get into a Leinster or a Munster or an Ulster team um, you know it, it's you, you have to be of a certain level and once you're in there there's no really hiding place so this is and it's very clear from Ireland that there's no hiding place especially under the circumstances of, of lo- losing those you know extremely notable and 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 important players now, I do think their job was made a little bit easier by um, reverting to, again, what I think is a, was a more basic and, and physical-based game plan. Um, again, that's not a bad, it was not a bad plan, and it was certainly not a bad plan against Wales, and it, it worked well. Um, so it was made a little bit easier for them, but there was no shirking of any responsibility. That was for certain, and there was no hiding, hiding place for them, or there was no hiding done by them, which is, again, really encouraging. Jerry, just, uh, I mean, a few years ago, it always felt like Ireland were slower bringing young players through mm. than certainly the top nations, Australia and New Zealand in particular, and obviously the Pacific Islands, um, or even, say, George North for Wales. Um, but now we've had a whole crop come through that under-20s team. Um, and the striking thing is how physical they are. Is this a new way for Irish rugby to uh, bring players through? Is it, is it just this freakish crop? Or have we kind of figured out how to get guys really good, really young? Good question. Haven't really thought about that. I think it might be an element of both. I do think that uh, the weekend perhaps showed that it's increasingly more younger, dynamic game now. We're talking of the day that Jamie Heaslip has been forced to retire, and I was interested to read Gordon Darcy's column last week that he reckons that there won't be anybody soon t- b- jumping into the hundred cap club. That you know, there's we had a lot of players reaching hundred plus caps, but such as the the toll of the modern game now that that's going to be less and less so. Um, that, that clearly was an extraordinary crop when you think that uh, Porter, Ryan and Stockdale were all in that Irish under-20 team that made the Junior World Cup final less than two years ago. Um, and it is unusual to see them come through. We've got to bear in mind that, you know, they're partly there because of injuries. You know, had Ty Farland been fit, had Ian Henderson been fit, certainly had Robbie Henshaw been fit, um, had Sean O'Brien been fit, a lot of them wouldn't have been playing. But... I think you have to give credit to Joe Schmidt as well. There's some kind of myth out there that he's a conservative selector. He, I don't think this is the case at all. He's always been prepared to blood younger players if needs be. He he was very quick to bring um, James Ryan and Andrew Porter on the summer tour. I think they probably made their test starts before they made their Leinster starts, um, in, in certainly in Porter's case, a tight head. And um, 
you know, he could have gone with John Ryan at tight head, but went for, with Porter. And a lot of people would have said, oh, it's okay. It's understandable to go with John Ryan. He's the more experienced performer. Um, but no, he went with Porter. And as well as being an excellent coach, you've got to say one of the things he's perhaps overlooked about him is he's an excellent selector. You know, he picks teams well. Most of the the decisions that have been questioned over the years invariably turn out to be right and that certainly was one that was vindicated Shane Jerry mentioned Jamie Heaslip there he retires with the three Heineken Cups uh, three Six Nations including the Grand Slam he's basically been there for any of the big achievements in Irish rugby over the last decade or so um, was there any particular quality that Heaslip brought to the whole thing that, uh, that caught your eye? Well, It's, it's interesting that the, um, he's actually had to been forced to retire because of injury when he's probably the most durable player um, was certainly the most durable player in the professional era. You know, he just was never injured. Uh, he always delivered very, very high performances. Um, there's very rarely that you would get Jamie Heaslip, you know, less than you know an eight out of ten, and, and very often more. He just was consistent uh, in a high, an extremely lo- a high level of performance to such a degree that. Um, you know, you really didn't see anybody displacing him for for a very long period, and even now it seems strange that you won't see Jamie Heaston as number eight on the Irish team. Um, and he was, and as I said, as he was, he was never injured. He was just always there, and consistency was was his base certainly. And I also think you know he had an extremely high work rate. Um, he was you know very trusted by his coaches and. Uh, got, did sort of a lot of the things that you would want from your A to do at, a, at always at a very high level. Um, so it's kind of disappointing for him to have to retire because of injury. You know, every I think almost every player wants to go out, would like to go out on their own terms. It so so rarely happens. Uh, if it's not injury, then you know you stay on a bit too long, and, and selection becomes a key. Um, but also, I, what I would say is from his perspective. It's hard to be too disappointed, given I think he's you know 34 years old or so, um, has won um, everything you know in the game aside from a uh, a World Cup. He's you know played with brilliant players, you know bags of medals, bags of trophies. Very very highly respected, um, you know British and Irish lion. Um, he's he's packed a lot into that career. Just on Scotland, speaking of consistency, Shane, that's the one thing we might not be able to expect. But if I can put it to you that they will perform to the same standard they performed against England, against Ireland in a couple of weeks' time. What particularly would you be worried about from that Scottish performance that could test Ireland? Because it sounds like a lot of the weaknesses we're talking about in the Irish team are almost set up for this this type of Scotland rugby, Scottish rugby, I should say, to cause damage to. Yeah, OK, but you just can't take it... Um that you know the same level of performance will be this week as next week not just because they're so inconsistent but it's more uh, your performance is is mitigated by a level of performance is mitigated by the opposition and what they're doing and i thought you know scotland really fell into their uh, trap um you know by the by the way they were set up their performance level individually and the, the um, tactics that they were using so i think straight off the bat um there you're right there are some elements of where i'm a little bit weak especially in the outside channels uh, scotland can move the ball to the outside channels um very effectively um and that's a challenge that will be a challenge for ireland but there's other things that really had a key element, a key um, impact on the game. And that was around turnover and breakdown that Ireland are very solid at. There's no doubt about that. I don't think there's a better rooking team um, in the Six Nations. Uh, so I don't expect to have a huge you know, a number of turnovers 
not gonna, there's not going to be penalties at the breakdown. Ireland only had four penalties in the entire game, which is is borderline ridiculous. Uh, in that, you know, when when I was playing, the goal was uh, to get it under ten, keep it under ten, and now consistently keeping it under five, which just gives you a you know a huge opportunity to to dominate possession, which I think they will do against the Scots. I don't expect I expect Scotland to be g'd up from the performance and be happy and and a little bit more comfortable. And I don't know if that's a great position for Scotland to be in necessarily. And I, you know, I enjoyed watching Scotland play. I enjoyed the success they had. But I, I honestly don't think that it, that game will be a, a, one of the more difficult ones for Ireland. Jerry, um, I yeah, they'd worry me. I think that uh, I don't think they can be as bad as they were against Wales in the first match, or as bad as they were against England and Twickenham last year. That being said. I understand where Shane's coming from. Nine of their last ten, they won nine of their last ten games at home, and their away form has been iffy to say the least. And they tended not to replicate those performances, such as beating Ireland at home last year. And Ireland should be well warned by the fact that Scotland beat England and what Scotland did to Ireland last year in Murrayfield, when, as Rob Carney said, they allowed um, Finn Russell to play in this shirt and tie for the first twenty minutes and lay a glove on him, and they'll hardly do that again. Two of those first half tries emanated directly from John Barkley getting his hands over the ball, latching onto the ball. And England just under-resourcing the ruck. Only one guy going in. Joe Launchbury couldn't shift him on one occasion. Chris Robshaw on another. And they broke up field and scored both times. Um, and I think that... Uh, but the one thing I would say is why I would make Ireland favourites again for a lot of the reasons that Shane outlined. The one thing we can safely assume is that no matter what the lead might be at some point for Ireland, the game will not be over until the fat ladies certainly clear their throat because um, the Scots, like Wales, will come at Ireland if they have to play catch-up. And have to really give it a lash and go wide and be inventive about it. They'll be every bit as good as Wales, where they put four lines in that back line, and arguably the pick of their backs was a non-line in Hugh Jones. So I think it looks like it's going to be one of those roller coaster rides all the way to the end line. If there's ever going to be a DVD made about this season and this Irish season, it's going to make for <laughs> very entertaining viewing. Yeah, lots to get excited about in the next couple of weeks. Jerry, brilliant, Shane, great stuff. Thanks, Mill. Cheers. Thanks, Mill. What you? What are you saying? You just a phony, man. This is just what. Admit, I don't look like the athlete of the day supposed to look. This ain't wrestling. This ain't the WWE, baby. My belly's just a little big. My hand is just a little big. This is just an act that you're doing. You should be an actor. But brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad. I'll never do that. There were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's dead, brother. And the other was right here. You can, you can run around like you're a preacher and all that you want, but baby, I promise you, I will baptize you. Well, let's get a bit more reaction to the Scotland win now with Tom English, Chief Sports Writer, of course, for BBC Scotland. Tom, hope you're keeping well. I'm keeping very well, yeah, thank you. Good to hear. Just reading your report again after the defeat to Wales, if you don't mind me quoting from your piece. Scotland's recovery was a fragile <laughs> one. <laughs> and now you know what's coming. Scotland's recovery was a fragile one, and now it's no kind of revival at all. This was the day when they had to announce themselves as contenders, and they flunked the test in the most abject and humiliating way. It was the kind of performance that made you rethink everything you ever thought about Scotland's supposed progression from also rans to contenders. In truth, they're miles off. How does Tom English of the 26th of February answer Tom English from a couple of weeks back? I, I think it's the same person. Um, I think uh, there was never any doubt that Scotland were a formidable team at Murrayfield. Um, they've shown that. They've done it against Ireland, did it against Wales last season, did it against Australia, almost did it against New Zealand. Um, it's away from home. And I think the battleground in the Six Nations, if you want to be considered contenders, you have to win away from home. I know it's murderously difficult to do that. And seems to be getting harder and harder with each season, passing season. But Scotland, you know, 
uh, at Twickenham last season, they went down there with a lot of hype and with good form, and they got obliterated. Uh, they went to Cardiff this season with a lot of hype and good form and got obliterated. Scotland are very, very good at home. Very good at home. Hugely formidable. But away from home, that's where the big issue is. And the doubts still remain, and they're going to remain until they actually go away and do something. I'm not even talking about winning in Dublin. I'm being talking about being competitive. And they haven't been competitive against the big guns uh, as often as they need to be. That's all. That that's the the limit of your hope for this Scottish team that they're competitive in Dublin, despite all the expansive play you saw no. at the weekend. No, I think they can win. Oh, they, you think they can I win? Think I genuinely, yeah, I think they have. I think they've learned some some very harsh lessons uh, in Twickenham and in Cardiff. Now, I'm not saying they are going to win, but I think they are capable of winning. Um, they're capable of losing uh, 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 comprehensively as well. But if if they get enough ball, if they look after ball, if they win the breakdown, Scotland are very dangerous. They're extremely dangerous. Now, the England back row was completely routed. Townsend did an absolute number on Eddie Jones in terms of the back row battle. Eddie Jones picked a hulking and fairly slow back row. Townsend, there was a lot of cries for David Denton to come in at number, number eight because he could match fire with fire in the physicality. He didn't. He went with Ryan Wilson, who's lighter, who's more mobile, who's quicker, who's more dynamic. And everyone was going, oh, no, they're going, to get, they're going to get sorted out physically in the back row. They didn't. They were just so sharper than England. They were so quicker around, uh, to the breakdown. And between them, and particularly John Barkley, they were stunning. I mean, they, they turned over England six times in, in, their, in Scotland's 22. Just when England were getting momentum, six times they got turned over in Scotland's 22, and Barkley was responsible for three of them. And off, off two of those turnovers in Scotland's 22, they went down the other end and scored. So I think this Scotland team is a dangerous team, but they have it all to prove on the road in Dublin as much as anywhere else because we know what Ireland are like in Dublin. But Tom, one thing this Scottish team did prove, or maybe prove some people wrong, those who doubted whether, A, this Glasgow game plan that Townsend had could be transferred to international rugby, but also people talk about the white-hot atmosphere of the Six Nations, how it's different to other tournaments, and how pressure changes things. So it's easy to be more muscular, more aggressive, to have a better rush defence, to just be a bit more frenzied and energetic, but it's impossible to be as skillful and composed as you would have been at club level and to transpose that game plan over to playing England in Murrayfield is quite an achievement. And also, what's amazing is that both Townsend and Finn Russell essentially doubled down on their crazy risk-taking 20-meter passes that they both did uh, do as players, or Gregor did as a player, but now as a coach, he advocates for Finn Russell to, don't worry about what's been said about you, that it's the end of your career, do even more of what you were doing against Wales and, uh, and France. Yeah, I mean, it, listen, he, he, he did play a very Finn Russell-type game. He just did it better than he, did against, than he did against Wales. I mean, against Wales, he was trying these passes when they weren't really on, and they got turned over, and we know what happened. Against England, he was trying them when they were on. And, he was, and he's, I mean, he's one of the best passes of the ball I have ever seen uh, when he's in the right mood. Um, but he got, I think they got, he got the balance of his game perfectly uh, on, on Saturday. He, he was an amalgam of the classic Finn Russell risk-taking, but he introduced an element of control as well. 
if you saw him in Cardiff, he was trying things. I think he's, I think he's brain melted in Cardiff. He was trying things that just weren't on against against England. He was much more measured, much more accurate. And this is the thing, and that's the word. Scotland were accurate against England. They were not accurate accurate against Cardiff, against Wales and Cardiff. If they're accurate against Ireland, we could have a classic game of rugby because they can play these guys. They can really play, as we know. They can score tries from their own 22. They can they can get outside Ireland. They can they can they will score against Ireland if Ireland aren't as good as they were at the breakdown. And they were brilliant again themselves against against Wales on Saturday at the breakdown. Whoever wins the breakdown, I think, could win this match. Yeah, but you're, you're, I know you're saying he just executed better, but that is mm. the that is the trick. He would have looked like such a fool. Say that massive pass to Hugh Jones that's been all over yeah. Twitter and social media. How much of a fool, given how he played in the first couple of games in the Six Nations and the criticism he got and the criticism Gregor Townsend got for looking for being so naive to think they could play this way against the bigger teams, against the number two side in the world? Um, just the mentality to do that more than anything, it's so incredibly rare at international rugby. It is, but, I mean, it, was, it wasn't all kind of barbarians rugby. I mean, Scotland, they went to war up front and they won the forward battle. So they got, they got ball on the front foot they, they, and, they, and they executed brilliantly. And yet there was a large element of risk-taking and there will always be a large element of risk-taking um, in Gregor Townsend's game plan. And fair play to him. He's sticking to his guns. A lot of people were saying, myself included, look, you need to introduce a level of prag- a pragmatism to all of this. And I think he did, to be fair. I think there was a, a, an element of pragmatism to it. But when it's on, when they see that it's on, they will go, they will take those risks. Now, the big, huge skip pass, that came off a turnover by John Barkley in his own 22. Um, they attacked off that. The big skip pass, if you look at it again and again and again, it was a risk, but it was beautifully executed. I mean, people say, oh, it could have been intercepted. It was actually nowhere near being intercepted. The pass was so good. Uh, you know, it sailed over the head of Jonathan Joseph, and it was just pin sharp. And I think so much of what Scotland did on Saturday was pin sharp. And if, and if they get that right, we've seen it enough times from them now, if they get that right, if they get enough ball, if they get dominance up front, if they get quick ball for the breakdown, they can score against anybody. You mentioned Ryan Wilson's performance there, which started, he laid his marker down pre-match, Tom, with uh, some sort of an incident involving himself and Owen Farrell was picked up a little bit in the middle distance by the TV cameras. Any idea what went on between yeah. those two guys? Um, well, I'm still trying to get to the bottom of it. I, I think, I think you know, it's 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 now challenging David Soule's slow walk in 1990 as the best tunnel moment in the history of the Calcutta Cup. Uh, I suspect Ryan Wilson is is a belligerent character. He's got plenty to say for himself. He's the, he's the kind of the wind up merchant in that Scotland pack. I suspect that maybe, and that's a very narrow tunnel. And unusually, both sides went up the tunnel at the same time. So there was a bit of a coming together. I think words were exchanged, and Farrell reacted to it, and that was just grist to Scotland's mill. I mean, they loved that. I mean, Wilson, was, he's very mouthy. Uh, he's a very funny guy. Um, but, all, I mean, it was, it was perfect. As long as we don't know now whether the, the language used strayed into kind of overly abusive, but I don't think so. What I'm hearing, it was just the usual nonsense you hear. Wilson maybe shoving... Uh, Farrell, Farrell reacting to it 
handbags, but great sport. I think it was great. <laughs> All right, Tom English, listen, we'll wait to see which Scotland turns up in Dublin in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Surtout pas être pris hors jeu, pas hors jeu, pas hors jeu. Tant pis, ça relance, c'est du terrain, mais pas hors jeu. Le drop, il arrive. Le drop de Jonathan Sexton. One, two, three, four. Le drop. Available for Murray. Moves it back down now towards CJ Stander. CJ Stander under pressure, but it's trying to have control of it. Midway between the French 22 and the 10 meter line. Sexton with the attempted drop of goal. Both side the 22. Goes to towards the post. It's gone towards the post. It's over. Ireland with the drop of goal. It's gone between the posts. Let's drop. The ball is gone. The fellas are just literally on top of each other. Away to the left hand side. France have been absolutely destroyed with the final kick of the game. It's drop and goal. France have been robbed of victory. 82, 83 minutes gone. At the start of France, the face has gone mad. Ireland have snatched it from the jaws of defeat. Incroyable. Quel match winner. Quel match winner. Jonathan Sexton à la dernière crucifie l'équipe de France. Que c'est dur. C'est terrible. Terrible. Le drop de Jonathan Sexton. Well, one thing I've always associated with the Six Nations and indeed rugby as a sport is the wearing of gum shields. It's more <laughs> really? of a recent, yeah. <laughs> but it's more of a recent, only because I do remember when playing Gaelic football as a kid, when people started wearing them. Yeah. I always thought it's a bit odd. It's more of a rugby thing. Yeah. Um, but not anymore. Or? No, not anymore. It's become enshrined in the game's laws in recent years. Laws that one of the combatants in this weekend's Alliance League has fallen foul of. Yes. Owen Doyle. Uh, Kildare captain was sent off yesterday <laughs> playing for Kildare against Donegal for not wearing his gum shield. Uh, he had picked up a yellow card a couple of minutes beforehand. Uh, the referee spotted that he hadn't a gum shield in. Yeah. He told Owen Doyle to run off the field. This is a, a series of events as described by Keen O'Neill. We haven't heard uh, a rebuttal from the GA about any of this, so maybe that will come down the line. But as of right now, uh, Ondoel was sent to the sideline to uh, get a gum shield. As he was running off, all his goalkeeper saw was, oh, there is Ondoel in a ton of space. Why don't I kick the ball out to him? Ondoel caught the ball. Uh, the referee said, oh, okay, so you're you're refusing to leave the field. Give him a yellow card and send him off. <laughs> so it's a tough one. Now, I have to say, on that uh, I spent a couple of years not playing any Gaelic football. And in that time, this rule was brought in where players had to wear gum shields. Yeah. So when I returned to the playing fields, I was a little... I, I, I wasn't entirely sure about how strictly this rule was going to be enforced. You know, because like, I'd never played with a gum shield in. And I was concerned that it was, you know, it was going to hamper my breathing, hamper my performance. Uh, so I kind of... I remember actually the first game I played under these new rules, I was asked the guy that I was marking, he's like, you, you're not wearing a gum shield. It's, is this a thing? Like, well, listen, <laughs> this is not a rule that's enforced all that much. Is what I'm trying to tell at you. club level. That's what you're saying. At club level, intercounty possibly is. And I've well, seen mouth guards have been compulsory for players at all age grades 
since January the 1st, 2014. And apparently mm. there was a drop of 39% uh, of dental injuries, mm. dental injury claims during that, fo- that year. Yeah, well, the, the whole idea of it is basically that to the stop GA your liable. teeth getting knocked out. Well, it's not even so much that; it's just that the GA would have to pay for all of those every time someone's teeth got knocked out. Whereas now, so it's there's insurance issues and so on. Exactly. So uh, it's kind of like it's on you if you get your teeth knocked out, okay. as opposed to it being on the GA. So, I, like, that's where the rule change came from, as opposed to a high-minded "let's save Ireland" smiles. <laughs> you know. So it's not totally ludicrous that the guy was sent off. Is well, it? Well, it's, I mean, the rule is there. I mean. It sounds ludicrous, and the circumstances of it are ludicrous in that if if he was leaving the field mm. to get his gum shield, and as he was running off, a goalkeeper picks him out for a short... It was a little unfortunate. I, I'm going to say it's not quite as cut and dried as... I mean, the rule is there, so what are you going to do? You Wait, know, you're getting you a carriage, like so... Gum shield, the bed can, and the GA. Sweeping the GA at the moment. Um, not something you've given much thought to. I don't know why the, you enforce a rule, a rule that people have to wear them. Well, you enforce a rule and hurting the people have to wear helmets for yeah, safety but, uh, helm- Helmets, you know, are, are there to protect your brain. I mean, gum shields are just there to protect your teeth. How else are you going to have those um, those classic hard man, toothless, gap-toothed photos? Maybe that's not the image that the GA wants to portray, Ken. Well, why not? Why is that not the image the GA wants to portray? That should be the image or one of the images that the GA wants to portray. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think the GA necessarily has a problem with that image. I think it's just more people have a problem with them not having any teeth. You know, well, the, the hard men but, but do the, actually but, still but, want to have teeth. But, That's but, the, but why don't they? Well, well, I don't understand why there has to be a rule. If you don't want your teeth knocked out, wear a gum shield. Well, I mean, it's simple. Does, does why, do you, why do you have to make it a rule that everybody has well, to do Why do you have to wear shin guards in football? Do they give the gum shields out for free? No. Well, then they shouldn't have a rule that you have to wear one. Well, I've... They I've, don't give the shin guards out for free in football, and yet you do have to wear shin guards. But that's, that's part d- of your... That's, that's different. It's part of the kit. I did once... Ken for getting passionate about something you didn't yeah. care about 30 seconds ago. <laughs> <laughs> I did once get away with where, uh, you stuffing some cotton wool down my socks playing soccer. Yeah. The referee is supposed to sort of tap your shin guards, tap my cotton wool. Probably <laughs> thought it was just too much effort sending this lad off. Yeah, <laughs> uh, off I went. With wow. some cotton wool there, yeah. That seems rather odd. Though. Thankfully, didn't I mean, I, don't, I, I, mean uh, there's, uh, I mean, cotton wool. Why did you, that why referee did that, why did that is happen, an idiot. Though? I had I'm no sorry. shin guards with me. It was one of those jobs where somebody calls, a friend A friend calls into me and says, oh, you're about 16. Hmm. We have, we're short of players for whatever team. I'm yeah. Can you jump in? Oh, not a particularly prideful man. Sure, what team? Where's the match? <laughs> <laughs> I've got my boots waiting, uh, ready to go, but unfortunately, I just didn't have any shin guards. I was a guy man, Ken. I didn't yeah. have shin guards or mouth guards or anything. I had my boots. Yeah. It's all I could bring to the table. Have there. boots, will play. Yeah. That was the McDevitt rule. Have, back have boots. Anyone got any cotton wool? <laughs> there, shouldn't, there shouldn't be a rule for that. Thanks, Ken. Not everyone well, has to Owen, be. Owen, I like you and I like your style. Well, Murata, I don't see what your interjection is necessarily achieving here, but I, I also like your style. He cut you off, Ken. You yeah. got one last one last point to make on this. No, oh, just, you're amazing. We all we we all don't have to be Roberto Firmino, you know. We there's there's still room for the Christie rings. Mm. Was he no gap tooth? No, man? not notoriously gap tooth. There must have been a few. Oh, don't worry, plenty. Old. Thanks, plenty Ken. Ken. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, uh, guys. See you during the week. Hopefully, for some more inaccurate predictions of big sporting events from myself and Murph, and maybe even Ken will join in with those. Chat to you soon. I mean, I could see Man City beating four 0 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 